The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Good evening, everybody. Uh, So tonight, for Father's Day, I'm going to be speaking. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew Higginbotham, and I'm one of the leaders here at Love City. And for those of you who would like to have a title for your sermons when you write them down, the title of this message is When the Fathers Got It Wrong. So we're talking about Father's Day, we're talking about fathers, and one of the issues we always have to deal with is that fathers are a problematic category for some people. And so I want to be honoring of that as I preach today. I want to be honoring of those who have been our biological fathers and those who are our spiritual fathers. And I want to connect to those of you who are not fathers, either yet or ever, and say that this message also comes to you because we all have a relationship to someone that we could call our father. Now, let me tell a story about my own fatherhood if we can call it that. So I have a 15-month-old boy. He is my first boy. There's not another one yet, just in case anyone's keeping track of that. But uh, he's, the first, he's the first baby for me. And uh, when he was first born, he was basically a little Andrew clone. He looked exactly like me. Uh, in fact, we pulled out baby pictures, and you could probably not tell us apart. We probably looked exactly like twins in some of these outfits. Um, but as children do, when they grow up, they change. So his appearance changed a little bit, so now he looks more like uh, my beautiful wife. Um, And I changed as I grew and became a father for the first time. And as all humans, I got some of those things wrong. There were times when I got frustrated with my little boy, when he is whining for a graham cracker or trying to pull up, And I was not a perfect father. So we should take out of our our thinking and our judgment of those around us who are fathers this idea that they have to be perfect. However, they are still called to get things right. But what happens when they get things wrong? How do we respond to that? And how should we Uh, give them mercy and give them grace and show them forgiveness when, because of their sin, they get things wrong. So today we're going to be in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now in our Bibles, that's divided into two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, which is just before the book of Psalms and sort of after the book of Kings and Chronicles, if you're trying to turn there with me. And we're going to talk about basically what's happening through the whole set of text that we have there. And so I'm not going to read all of Ezra and Nehemiah, but I am going to focus in on different parts within the books and talk about how we approach this idea of flawed fatherhood. So I'm going to open today with our sort of main passage, Nehemiah chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading just verses 16 and 17, and then 28 through 31. So Nehemiah 9, 16, 17, 28 through 31, if you'll read along with me. 
But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck to you and did not obey your commands, O Lord. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you were a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsaken them. But after they had rest, they did evil against you again, um, and they abandoned them, and you abandoned them to the hands of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercy." And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your law, which if a man does, uh, he shall live by them. If, he, if, your man, if a man does your law, he shall live by them. But they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah and the people are recounting the history of God's mercy and covenant with Israel. And in fact, it's probably one of the first examples we have in the Bible that connects all of the dots of the different books that we call the Old Testament. It takes us from Genesis through Exodus, through Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. It takes us from the beginning of God's covenant with them until the time of Ezra and Nehemiah after the exile. And it recounts to God as they are confessing their sins that he has been merciful to them when they did not do what was right. And we have to remember that that is the legacy that we also have in the faith. We are following a long line of those who came before us, and they did not get things right. But that does not mean that God was not faithful to his covenant or that they were not an example to us. So we are not our fathers, but we are like our fathers. If we were to turn back to Ezra chapter 4 through 6, and I'm going to read some selected passages of that, we would find that when Ezra and the people come back from exile, they're trying to rebuild the temple. For, for instance, that is what God has commanded Ezra and the leaders of Israel to do. He's commanded them to come back to the holy city of Jerusalem and to begin to the process of rebuilding it by rebuilding his temple. But not everyone was pleased with this. Starting in chapter 4. Now, when the, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, their leader, and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households in Israel said to them, You will have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build it to the Lord. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and then bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. And in the reign of Azahurius, at the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And then it recounts the, the text of the letter that they send to the king, and the text of the letter that the king sends back and tells them to stop building this temple. And they cannot build the temple for a couple of years. 
And then the prophets, prophet, prophets Haggai and Zechariah come and they prophesy that now is the time to rebuild the temple. And they start the process again. And again, the adversaries send a letter to the new king. And the new king sends a letter back. And this time he gives Israel permission to rebuild the temple. And in this process, they are opposed at every side. They have political pressure against them. They have social pressure against them. They have religious pressure against them. And there are people in that age who are saying, it is too soon to rebuild this temple. And there are other people who are saying, it is too late to come back to this city. And there are other people who are saying, who gave you authority to do these things? Later in uh, the book of Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2 through chapter 6, we see a similar thing happen in sort of the second wave of the rebuilding. Nehemiah has now come back from exile, and he has taken on the task of rebuilding the city walls to protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to allow them to be protected from uh, the uh, marauders or people that would do them harm. And again, people arise who say, oh, let us come and help you build. And he says to them, no, we do not need you to help us build. And they interpret that as opposition. And they say to him, oh, you're not strong enough to finish this task. You're not going to build a wall that's going to stop anyone. A small fox can jump on top of this wall and it's going to topple over. You don't know what you're doing, Nehemiah. And then when that doesn't work, they threaten violence. They try to trick Nehemiah into coming into uh, to their house, to a party, where they're going to try to attack him. Then they try to sing, send marauding bands against the people who are rebuilding the walls. When, when there still are some openings and gaps in the wall, they're going to send people in to kill everyone in the city and teach them a lesson. And then they're going to, they also form plots and conspiracies, right? They try to trick Nehemiah and the other people by, by sending them false prophets, by sending them people they've paid to give them a false message, to try to change their mind, to, to give them this fake news about what the reality is. I know that doesn't sound familiar to anyone. I know that none of these things sound like anything that we are experiencing today. That There is no place in our world where we are struggling to know what is true and what is real in the news. That we're struggling against threats and actions of violence about those who just want to sow chaos and destruction in our society. Those who want to reap vengeance against one or another group within our society. We don't have people that are telling us that it is too soon for us to do something. Or it's too late for us to change the consequences of our previous actions. And we have people who are questioning the entire authority of the governors, of the mayors, of people in the health department, and people in the Congress, of the president himself, saying, who gave you the authority? Who allowed you to have this power to do these things over you? I'm sure that none of that seems familiar in our day and age. No, that sounds exactly like the kind of world that we're living in the past few weeks. We have been experiencing a very tumultuous experience. I mean, everywhere in social media, you can see all sorts of, I think they're supposed to be funny, memes and, and pictures and posts about how, you know, we, we have three or four different years kind of clump clumping together, slamming into each other. We have pestilence and plague and social unrest and economic depression. 
We are like our fathers, but we are not our fathers. We have an opportunity to face the world in a different way, to make different choices. And one of the issues we have to remember in that is that we will not get things perfectly right. Remember when I told you about my little boy that sometimes I get frustrated with him? That his desires and my desires do not align? That sometimes I'm not patient with him? Sometimes I make the wrong choice about how to react to him? And that's how we are with one another. We have to remember that sin is always going to creep in and try to corrupt our relationships, try to form a wedge between people, between groups, between ideas, between those in power and those who seek to be in power. We are not our fathers, but we are like our fathers. And we are like our fathers in that we also have a covenant from God. We have God's promises that he will sustain his plans and he will frustrate ours when they are in opposition to him. We will never do anything to surprise God, to undo what God has planned. He has guided us, his people, for generations, and he will continue to guide us, and he will forgive us. In his mercy, he will overcome the effects of our sin. It may take a long time, but he is working to redeem us and redeem this world. So first, we are not our fathers, but we are like our fathers. Secondly, we are not our fathers because our fathers were sometimes in error. Again, we have an opportunity now to change the misdeeds of the past. We have an opportunity to seek a reconciliation between political groups, between racial groups, between the fathers and the children between those in power and those that they serve. And the problem is that we're still going to get it wrong. But we can sometimes see in hindsight the errors that those that came before us made. We may not be able to correct the errors that we have, we're going to make, but we can try to fix the problems we had before. I'm going to give you one example from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So in Ezra and Nehemiah, the very end of each book, Ezra chapter 9 through 10 and Nehemiah chapter 13, they deal with the issue of intermarriage. So Israel had been commanded by God to stay separate from the peoples around them. God said that if you, if you intermarry with these other groups, the Ammonites, or the Moabites, or the Perizzites, or the Canaanites, that they were going to lead you astray. And as we read in Nehemiah chapter 9, they did. When Israel didn't obey God's command, the people stopped following his laws. So we have the people on the ground who are not following God's laws. They're first not following this law to sort of keep themselves holy while they're in the world. And then they stop following God's laws about how to be holy. And yet, they didn't do it because they wanted to stick it to God. They weren't thinking at the moment that they were having malice or rebellion against God. No, see what they were doing as they softened the law. 
and changed the law and that ignored the law is they did what was politically convenient for them. There are many opportunities in our society for us to do what is politically convenient for us, to approach ourselves in the marketplace of ideas, to approach ourselves in the political system, to approach ourselves in the decisions we make about whether we're going to obey the governing authorities or whether we're going to obey our own interests, to do what is politically convenient for us. It's very easy for us to confuse what we want with what God wants. And it's not always clear whether the line between those is. And our fathers and their fathers and their fathers before them made mistakes in that way. There are many examples in which if you go to social media today, we will rehearse all of the problems of the leaders and the generations that came before us. Oh, that this world is the way it is because they messed it up. And yet it is politically convenient for us to throw off all responsibility we have about our own actions, our own misjudgments, our own incorrect opinions. So the people did not follow God's laws, but did what was politically convenient for them. But the leaders were not clear either. In, in fact, in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, it talks about the, the priests themselves, the ones who were supposed to teach the law, the ones who were supposed to maintain the holiness of Israel, the ones who were supposed to be above board, that they too participated in this sin of intermarriage. And they, what happened is that other leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah had to come in and break up their families and disenfranchise these people, remove them from their position within the temple, to remove them from their position within society. And that also was an error. We struggle in this year. We struggle in this generation. We have struggled for the time that America has begun with how we understand the words that we hold sacred as a political people. We say that all men are created equal, yet we create situations in which they are not. We have kept people and groups and political parties and cities and states and whole generations under the thumb of a system that benefits the few. And the Bible does not seek to privilege the few. In fact, the Bible seeks those that are the lowly, those that are the poor, those are the people that God identifies with, those are the people that Jesus lived among and ministered to. And we as the church cannot forget our mission to continue the work of mercy, the work of redemption, that our Lord and Savior has called us to. We are not our fathers, but we must be like our Father in heaven. In Nehemiah 5, Nehemiah sees that the, these people who are his people are doing things that are not right. They have impoverished their kinsmen, 
And it continues in Nehemiah 13. He sees that the priests and the Levites who were supposed to be maintained, that the people are supposed to be providing them with offerings, providing them with the tithes, so they can be about the work of the ministry in the temple, that they have had to go back to their own fields because the people are not feeding them. The poverty that surrounds Nehemiah raises within him righteous anger, and he seeks to stop it. In one point, he actually seems to whip those who are enriching themselves at the cost of others. Now, this may be a little bit striking of an image for you, but we also have a similar passage within the New Testament. In the book of James, which comes towards the end of the New Testament, in James 2 and in James 5, two places within the book, we have warnings against those who are wealthy to make sure that they take care of the poor. In James 2, it says, you come and you see one man who is rich and one man is poor and you esteem the rich man, you give him a nice place to sit. You make sure that his coffee is filled up and is from Starbucks. And the poor man, you make him sit in the back. You treat him like an outsider and you don't even give him a cup of water. That's the answer translation. And in James 5, he comes back and says, you have workers working your field who are your own brethren, who are like you in the faith, but you have not even paid them their wages. And they are starving to death because you are trying to nickel and dime them. So the message of the Bible from beginning to end is one of mercy. It's one of justice. And it's one of compassion for those around us. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, Micah, one of the minor prophets, says, What does God require? Not sacrifices, but that we do justice, that we love steadfastly, and that we walk humbly with God. In James chapter 1, verse 27, James tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled is that we attend and comfort those who are orphans and widows, and that we keep ourselves unstained by the world. How does that go together? How do we do justice and love steadfastly? How do we take care of those who are in need without a father of the orphans, without a husband for the widows? How do we do that and keep ourselves from being corrupted by the world? We walk humbly with our God. God goes into the world and sees all of us as impoverished. Even the most wealthy person is a pauper compared to the majesty and the glory that the triune God has. Even the most self-righteous, morally upstanding person is, the Bible says, looks like they're covered in filth compared to the glorious radiance, purity, and holiness of God. So when we walk with God, we must walk with him, seeing those around us, not by class, not by race, not by any sort of distinction that our human corrupt sinfulness wants to point out to us, but instead seeing those around us as in need of mercy. Now let me come back and talk about the orphans and the widows once more. Like I said at the beginning, there are some of us for whom the biological father is not there. 
They may have died, and we are left an orphan ourselves, even in adulthood. They may be never there, been simply a sperm donor, but never a parent. We may have fathers who are separated us, separated from us because of reasons of the state, reasons of their crime, reasons of their own poverty, or of their own addiction, or of the things that have come between us, or because they cannot let go of some difference between the father and the child. And the Lord comes to us as our father. I think it's a beautiful statement that we describe God as our father, that he stands in the gap for those of us who are orphans and widows, that he sees all of us as orphaned children in need of a benefactor, a protector, a father. Now, some of us may have poor examples of fathers. Those fathers may be in and out of our lives, but they still have that sin which is dragging them down, which is corrupting that relationship with us. But God wants to interpose himself. He wants to come as the righteous father who does not do harm, but comes with love and with mercy. Finally, there are those who are like I am, who are newly fathers, who are struggling to figure out how we should live. We don't want to mess it up. We don't want to be poor examples of a father. We don't want to be absent from our children's lives, either because of our own mistakes or because of our own corruption. And the Father in heaven comes to us as well to guide us, to mentor us, to show us how to father children. Not in a biological sense, but in the sense that lasts the sense of discipleship, the sense of mentorship, the sense of guidance and protection that we all have. We are not our fathers, but we are like them. We can be like them in their errors that become our errors. Or we can be like them in the right pursuit of the way of righteous fatherhood. Let us pray. Dearest Father, we thank you that you have given us an example in yourself of fatherhood, that you have provided for us a pure and unstained example of mentorship and discipleship, of love, of mercy, of restoration, redemption, and compassion. We pray, Father, that you would Help us to not be the fathers that came before us, whether they're biological fathers or spiritual fathers, those that taught us incorrectly. We pray that you would help us to correct their errors in our own lives, to correct the indwelling sin in our lives, that you would help us to walk in the righteous path before you. We pray, Lord, that we would have a pure, undefiled religion, that we would care for those around us, whether they are actually orphans or simply just orphans in your sight. We pray, Lord, that we would be unstained by the world, that we would not fall into the corrupt behaviors of those around us who see distinctions that you do not see. We pray, Father, that you would help us to do justice in our homes, in our cities, and in our world, that you would help us to love steadfastly, that you would make in us also a life of covenant love and forgiveness 
that you would help us to love even when we are not loved back. And finally, Lord, we ask that you would walk with us and help us to walk humbly with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.